WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. This time yesterday, we spent the hour discussing how to thrift clothes and furniture ethically, but still having a lot of fun. So many of you called in with great suggestions of places where to go. Wanted to let people know that audio is up now and available via our podcast, as well as our show page at WNYC.org. But also want to let you know, We think by Friday, the transcript will be up as well. So you can actually see all of those locations and names in print if that is your jam. Just want to let you know because a lot of folks reached out and wanted to know about the places. They are there for you and they will be there for you in print very soon. That is in the future. But right now, let's get this hour started with a look inside the world of art. Bianca Bosker begins her new book like this, quote, to be fair, everyone warned me it was a bad idea. What I wanted to do was not only impossible, but vaguely dangerous, they intimated. They didn't come right out and threaten my safety or anything, my reputation, well-being and livelihood as a journalist. That, however, was another story. And no, she's not talking about covering politics or the CIA or organized crime. She just wanted to get inside the world of art. But it turns out that Chelsea gallerists and Brooklyn performance space artists, performance artists, can be just as secretive and suspicious as undercover spies. The book is called Get the Picture, a mind-bending journey among the inspired artists and obsessive art fiends who taught me how to see. And in order to write, Bianca went headfirst into the art world. She was an intern for a Brooklyn gallery owner who obsessed over the right white paint for his walls. She sold photographs in Miami to collectors who argued over which home to put them in. She worked as a guard at the Guggenheim. She was an artist assistant to painter Julie Curtis and an advisor to a performance artist whose main subject was her very own large derriere. Through it all, Bianca tries to understand the fundamental questions, what makes art good, and how do you know it when you see it, and who are the decision makers in a field that can be so subjective? Bianca Bosker will be speaking tomorrow at Rizzoli Bookstore at 6 p.m., but she joins me now in studio. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Listeners who are involved in the art world, we want to hear from you. We know you listen. (laughs) Have you ever worked in a gallery, a museum, or as an artist's assistant? Are you an artist yourself? What is something from your experience in the art world that was inspiring or disappointing or just really surprising? What do you think people should know about the art world in New York? Our phone lines are open, 210. 
212-433-9692-212-433-WNYC is our number. You may call in and join us on air. You can also text to us at that number, 212-433-9692, 212-433-WNYC. If you'd like to remain anonymous because you want to spill some tea, you can DM us at Instagram. We promise we will keep your identity unknown. At all of it, WNYC is our Instagram. So you talk about how hard it was to get people to speak on the record, Bianca. Why do you think it was so hard to get people in the art world to talk to you? Yeah, so I should say, first of all, I it was an admittedly pushy plan that I had. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am a journalist, and like a lot of journalists, I do interviews, I read research reports, but I also believe in learning by doing. And I wanted to work in the art world and then report back on what I found. Mm-hmm. And when I started talking to people about this, as you alluded to, um, you know, instead of answers, I got threats and warnings. Um, and even once I got inside... It was, you know, I got a, my my first boss encouraged me to um, uh, get a makeover. Basically, um, mm-hmm. told me verbatim one afternoon. Um, I hate to break it to you, but you're not the coolest cat in the art world. So having you around is just like lowering my coolness. Um, but but I think that you know the art world does wield this strategic snobbery to keep people out, and I was surprised by that. You know, mm. I thought I was going to encounter this world full of open-minded iconoclasts who believed in embracing as many people as possible in the warm hug of art. And there are those people. There's that rebel alliance that believes that art, even cutting-edge art, is for everyone, that it's not a luxury, it is a necessity, and that everything you need to have a meaningful experience of art is right in front of you. But at the same time, you know, there is a big faction that wants to keep out the schmoletariat as they see it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, part of it is, I mean, there's almost a mob-like mentality where I think things that happen in the art world would pass for absurd, criminal, Mm -hmm. and unethical anywhere else. And so if you haven't taken a vow of silence to uphold the omerta, you're a liability. And at the same time, I think that that strategic snobbery, whether it's hiding prices or speaking in the made-up language of art speak, um, is a way to build mystique and concentrate power in the hands of gatekeepers. But art doesn't need that. It definitely doesn't need that. Why were people afraid what were people afraid of if they spoke with you were they afraid of losing their status were they afraid of alienating power brokers what was the fear yeah so i think that it's the sense of you know wanting to control the flow of information mm-hmm. um you know i think that one of the ways that um the art world tries to build mystique is by just generally withholding information right straightforwardness is uncouth um one of my boss's uh, advices to a colleague on dealing with buyers was say little as possible um being borderline hostile is cool right you know one Dealer told me, you know, some collectors, they want you to treat them rudely. Um, But I think it's, you know, this concern of, um, if you think about it, being told that we need connoisseurs, you know, if if we're told that we need like years of going to art fairs, an advanced degree, you know, and the right pair of jeans to commune with a painting, these gatekeepers and connoisseurs become a lot more important. Um, It really wasn't until I started working with up-and-coming artists as a studio assistant in their studio, that I began to discover a different way of looking at art, one that didn't rely on context, the web of names around a piece or an artist, um, the sort of social capital. Um, I was struck by the way that a lot of the art connoisseurs that I was meeting spent surprisingly little time discussing the merits of the artworks themselves. And instead, they asked questions like, 
you know, where did the artist go to school? Who owns their work? Who is he sleeping with? Sounds like you had a more fulfilling experience with the artists rather than the (laughs) apparatus around the artists. Yeah. And I had, you know, it was a a mixture. You know, I think um, I also had, you know, incredible experiences working at galleries, working as a security Mm -hmm. guard at a museum. Um, But something really did click for me when I sat there on artist studio floors, like stretching canvases and, you know, painting backgrounds. Um, I think that in galleries, we hear a lot about, you know, indexicality and historicity and None of that prepared me for the blistery business of actually making art. I mean, making mm-hmm. art, as many of your listeners probably know themselves, right, is practically athletic. Like, mm-hmm. I lost patches of arm hair to a sculpture. Um, you know, I watched artists sweating for hours to get the right shade of gray. Um, I was really dead set on developing my eye, and seeing artists at work helped me learn to savor art like an artist. I needed to slow down, examine the physical form, and pay attention to artists' decisions, Um, which I think is not what we're encouraged to do in this day and age. The last hundred years or so, we've been told that what really matters about art these days is the idea behind it. The thought trumps the thing. But as the artist Julie Curtis told me when I was working for her, an idea is not a painting. Painting is, as she Mm -hmm. said, constant decision-making, and those decisions offer us a pathway into the piece. I think that allows us to cut through the context, to cut through the gatekeepers, and experience art on our own terms. My guest is Bianca Bosker. The name of the book is Get the Picture, a mind-bending journey among the inspired artists and obsessive art fiends who taught me how to see. Let's talk to Kimberly who's calling in from Brooklyn, who also uh, works with the Guggenheim. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi. I'm going to just turn down the radio here so I can hear myself and you. Happy to be on the air, and I'm so thrilled about this topic. Thank you. Um, so I am. I also went through the rigors of being in many galleries, working for many galleries as a um, someone who cleaned the bathroom, dust the sculptures, I was a registrar, and then I worked my way up through six different galleries um, to director. Then I left that world and moved on to museum educator at the Guggenheim, which um, I've been doing for the last 24 years in New York, and I love. I'm also an art advisor, and I teach adult classes around the city. So I think what I wanted to share most is that there's no one way of – sharing art or approaching art uh, or discerning art um, with groups. So I try to read, as I say, read the room. And rather than lecture, I ask questions and I turn it into a discussion about art. Mm. And I really feel like that that validates everyone in the room or everyone in the group. And um, I just wish that it had been like that when I was coming up. You know, I was always lectured at, arms were folded, uh, people always have that sort of veil in front of them and you, and they're afraid to be called on. But when you make it a chat and it is sort of a democratic experience and you start with there's no wrong answer, it's amazing how arms unfold, body language mm. is relaxed, and people are willing to share their own lived experience by looking at that one work of art. And then we all learn something new about a work of art through everyone's lived experience. So that's that's my two cents, if it helps. Excellent two cents. Kimberly, thank you for calling in. I love that. I think um, I have a confession to make, and I don't know if Kimberly will approve of this, but um, kind of apropos of that, you know, I think that 
I often felt like wall labels and museums were almost like the right answer at the bottom of a of a word search. And I at least as initially as someone who came into this truly not really knowing how to engage with art. I didn't know how to do art. That's part of what started me on this journey. Um, going to museums and galleries reliably made me feel like I was two tattoos and a master's degree away from figuring out what was going on. And I used to think it was downright rude when galleries and museums didn't put these paragraph paragraph long descriptions of the work on the side. But when I started working as a guard, I started standing in front of the wall labels because mm-hmm. um, I felt like they really limited people's experiences and interpretations of the work. And, and they would sort of jump to it and sort of assume that was the answer. There was one right way into it. So um, I, I definitely what Kimberly's saying certainly resonates. Let's talk to John, who's calling in from Hell's Kitchen. Hi, John. Hi, Allison. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for are calling you- in. Well, thank you. I used to work for a company um, in Chelsea, Atomic Design, um, and we used to do the um, wall text for museums and art galleries and stuff like that. And what I learned, I mean, I'm, I have a background in graphic arts, but not fine art. And what I learned about fine art is it's just uh, to understand fine art. Of course, there is the, the serial, you know, experience of looking at a piece and getting, you know, what it means, what it makes you feel and stuff. But also what's really important is just like any industry, like the legal profession, there is legalese. There is a language to describe um, the industry. And there's a vocabulary that you have to you don't have to, but that you should expose yourself to. And the best way to do that is by um, reading art reviews, you know, just getting in the habit of reading art reviews. And just like any form of study, eventually, you know, you start seeing the patterns and you start understanding the language. And then when you go to art galleries, uh, I, I made it a point of uh, picking up the artist statement at the front desk. Um, you know, so you would look at a work first, perhaps experiencing, you know, what it makes you feel. And then, then I would read what the artist was trying to do. And it gives you, um, it gives you, um, another way of looking at it. And in some cases, in most cases, when you look at something you don't understand and you're not connecting with it, you read the artist's statement and it gives you this insight that you didn't have before. And many times, all of a sudden, it would click. And I would totally get it. And that's yeah. a, a tip that I would advise any art gallery goer to do. John, thank you so much for calling in. You, Bianca, get into the, in your book, get the picture, you get into art speak. Yes. Uh, what were some of the, the favorite words that you <laughs> learned? <clears throat> ones that... And also ones ones that you think, okay, that seems a little ridiculous as someone who who you professional writer. And then ones you thought, oh, well, that's an interesting way to use the language. I'd love to an example of each. Yeah. So I have to say that art speak. Um, I do not share our caller's love for art speak. Um, I would respectfully disagree. Um, <laughs> not that it can't be, of course, helpful to you know read, of course, an artist's statement. Um, but you know, art speak evolved, and this will not shock. I, I should say, if you aren't familiar with art speak, art speak is essentially that overly complex way of talking where the bigger the word, the better. So what an art critic calls indexical marks of the artist's body would be finger painting to Mm -hmm. you and me. Um, And art speak, uh, this emerged arguably not 
well, I should say, you probably know this mm-hmm. if you've ever heard it, emerged not necessarily to be a clear form of communication. There was a study of art press releases that found that the words spatial and non-spatial get used interchangeably, um, but rather to be this exclusionary code, arguably, that distinguishes people uh, that do or do not get it. Um, and I think that, you know, art speak puts up a boundary for people, and I think especially in institutions where um, – you know, when I was at the Guggenheim, I mean, we had people from all over the world coming. And, you know, I I had hours to analyze some of these wall labels, and I still struggle to understand. Um, they, feel, they feel like sort of the world's hardest reading comprehension test. Um, I would say, you know, indexicality, spatial, non-spatial, those are words that um, – uh, you know, make me itch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I One that I am trying to f- find my way to is mark making. I've had a lot of, but I worked um, uh, at a gallery um, and I had many conversations there uh, when I was writing the press releases over the merits or not of mark making. And I want to believe it has merits, but I still haven't personally used that word myself. This says, I'm a working artist in New York City. This text Worked in the food chain as an artist assistant for several years. My female coworker and myself, also a woman, were let go because the male artist was closing a studio. A month later, he hired two male assistants. We work as independent contractors, doing essentially long-term, full-time work, so we had no agency or legal standing. And you had this experience with a similar experience where your internship turned into like a 24-7 on-call, be-here paint walls, follow me around yeah, <laughs> yeah. situation. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's this uh, just expectation of a blurring of the boundaries between business and pleasure. And I think that, you know, for artists, there's this expectation that you will, uh, you know, it's like you socialize where you work. In some cases, you know, I spoke to someone who was in a very abusive gallery um, position where she essentially, you know, lived where she worked. She worked where she socialized. She socialized where she lived. She was living out of the gallery. Um, and, you know, there. I'm not surprised to hear this person's story, but I am dismayed to hear it. But, uh, you know, certainly I think that um, I was... You know, you asked before about, like, what is it that the art world doesn't want you to know? And I think... There are many things, um, but I think I came out of this experience feeling like we need to see fewer master. We need to spend maybe less time with masterpieces and more time with the undiscovered and surprising artworks. We need to go to the galleries and people's garages and mm-hmm. art schools and basements and, and homes. Um, I really set out to get into this world because I wanted to understand, you know, all the decisions that get made that takes a work from being the germ of an idea in an artist's studio to something that we ooh and ah over in a museum, right? Because those those decisions shape us, they shape our idea of art and who makes it and why we should bother to engage. And I think what I discovered along the way is just all the flaws in the machine, right? There's, um, you know, for just as an example, you know, I, I worked with someone whose go-to question when deciding whether to give an artist a show was, is this someone I would want to hang out with? And so I think that when we go and see these works in museums, it's important to keep in mind these aren't necessarily the best. I mean, I was when I was working at the Guggenheim, there was a piece that was, uh, as someone put it, you know, rather unanimously, just sort of kind of arbitrarily put in because the director insisted it went in. You know, forced was the word that was used. And so I think it is important when we go to these places to keep in mind that just because these objects are in a beautiful, spotless 
white room, there's no substitute for your own eye, for your own judgment. And that begins with long looking, with adventurous looking, um, and and going beyond sort of the traditional hierarchies and, and canons. Um, but yeah, and, and corrupt things happen. I mean, I was like, I was I was, say, why, why were you why were you uh, surprised that it had flaws? I mean, it's I like wasn't any- surprised <laughs> that it had flaws. But I think that understand it's one thing to, to know that something has flaws. It's an, mm-hmm. a, another thing to really understand at each point, what those look like and how they get baked into the machine. And I do think that there is, um, you know, perhaps I was naive, but you know, I had this this faith in these museums, these responsible stewards of culture, of the best that culture had to offer. And they are responsible stewards of culture, but it may not be the best, right? These are things that a lot of people could agree on. They are the products of decisions uh, by people who are biased and flawed, just like the rest of us. And I think that knowing and being able to see that for yourselves, I think I find that it helps me. I think that developing my eye meant um, you know, seeing the work differently, but also seeing the world around it differently. Um, but yeah, as an example, I mean, when I was working um, selling art in Miami, that there was a curator who brought uh, a a group of collectors around, and a collector then came by later and announced that you know they were buying one, two versions of the exact same photograph, one to be shipped directly to the museum and one to be shipped mm-hmm. directly to her home, which is you know a little. A little philanthropy, a little polite corruption, in the sense that when a work goes to a museum, the the value almost automatically increases. My guess is Bianca Bosker. The name of the book is Get the Picture, A Mind-Bending Journey Among the Inspired Artists and Obsessive Art Fiends Who Taught Me How to See. We have a whole bunch of calls lined up as well as some text, and Bianca will read a little bit from her book about her studio visits after a quick break. You are listening to all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest in studio is Bianca Bosker. The name of her book is Get the Picture, a mind-bending journey among the inspired artists and obsessive art fiends who taught me how to see. Bianca is speaking tomorrow at Rizzoli Bookstore at 6 p.m. The book is all about how she embedded herself in the New York City art scene. Uh, Let's take some calls. Let's talk to Mac from Brooklyn. Hi, Mac. Hello. How are you doing? Doing great. I uh, am a practicing artist and been in the art world for a few decades. And I, I left the gallery. I had a gallery and I left the gallery. And part of the reason, part of my motivation was just in, in you guys talking about vocabulary. Um, I'm also a commercial director. There's a whole set of vocabulary there, too. And it was fascinating to watch some of my friends who did better and made it start to use some of the more commercial vocabulary in the way they were describing their practice or their motivations or their successes and it kind of dawned on me, we as artists ostensibly do this. We love it. It's compulsion, right? It's this thing we have to do. But as you mature in this industry, you realize it's an industry. It is. And there are, it's a, it's a commercial practice, even though it's something that's so impassioned. And that's always going to be weird and always going to be at odds. And it's uncomfortable. And then one other sidebar real quick. Uh, I've watched sort of people, you know, I've watched like gallerists call other gallerists and say, hey, I'm moving of whatever. I'm moving of Joseph Carroll today. There's like 50 of them, right? So in any other world, that's insider trading. You go to jail. And in the art world, that's like a Tuesday. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, Mac. Uh, I just, this is a text. I just got, describe art speak using $50 words when $5 words will do. And I have degrees in both fine arts and art history. I find it to be exhausting and alienating. 
And then this text gets to something that you write about in your book, Bianca. Someone texted, I worked at Sotheby's right out of college in the 80s. Salaries were ridiculously low, yet whenever my colleagues had gatherings at their homes, the apartments were extremely elegant and expensive at exclusive addresses. I couldn't figure out how they managed to live like that until someone explained to me that everyone who worked there was on trust funds. That's when I became aware of how, quote, lower classes were kept out of decision making involved in what made art valuable. Mm, yes. Someone described this to me as magic money, money that you don't know where it comes from, um, but it works magic. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, someone else described, you know, running galleries as a princess business where it helps to come from inherited wealth. It's not to say that that's, you know, everyone's case, certainly. But I think um, there is this um, idea of being pure in the art world. Um, And that's this idea where the pure sort of treat money like diarrhea, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a fact of life, but gross. If you get it, you don't talk about it. Um, And, you know, there's the pure also, uh, there's sort of a spectrum where there's um, kind of quote unquote, couch art on one end of the mm-hmm. spectrum, which is a, a synonym with colorful painting. Um, and on the en- other end of it, there is FU art, um, which is, you know, the kind of work that doesn't play nicely as a d- at a dinner party. And the pure tend to uh, gravitate towards FU art, which is kind of market unfriendly, which is art speak for hard to sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, these are often galleries that get a lot of celebration. But let's not also forget that there's often magic money involved, right? These these works are can be very hard to sell, and so in some regards, you know, being pure is um, a luxury and it's and a privilege in its own right. You know, this idea of the distaste for money um, is itself a bit of a luxury. You do write in the book about visiting artist studios. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to read this passage because you get a real sense of how some people who just really believe in their art and are really passionate about it how they have to go about making it and what kind of circumstances they find themselves in. Would you mind reading from 57 to 58? Yeah, I'd love to. As the fall got underway, I spent more and more time meeting artists for studio visits one-on-one in the hopes of mining our conversations for tips on understanding and appreciating art. Names unlocked access, and it became easier to convince people to speak with me once I could drop that so-and-so had met with me already. I gravitated toward up-and-coming artists at the vanguard of the new, and I met them at night or on weekends, before or after their shifts as nannies, teachers, farmers, servers, bartenders, caterers, art handlers, web designers, construction workers, yoga instructors, photo retouchers, jewelry makers, gallery assistants, figure-drawing models, backdrop painters, crafters of Mongolian horsehair tassels, and studio assistants to more established artists. I went all over Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx, to warrens of rooms above auto body shops and metal yards. Studios were on long hallways set with rat traps, inside buildings that fluttered with ads for saw sharpening, therapy for creatives, and the chance to rent the corner of a sub-subdivided studio already being split between a group of artists. A A space slightly roomier than a Starbucks bathroom could be yours for $435 a month. Mysterious liquids dripped from the ceilings onto my notebook, and the dominant studio aesthetic was no one can hear you scream. Room windows were an expensive and thus rare commodity, but any space at all was a luxury. A studio could be the extra square footage of a bedroom revealed by tipping the mattress against the wall, or the 24 square inches of floor space between a bookshelf bed and closet door. 
To save room, painters painted over finished paintings, downsized to printer paper-sized canvases, or abandoned painting for video art, which they could more efficiently store on a hard drive. When I asked artists about their wildest hopes and dreams for the future, they didn't talk about seeing their names on banners outside the Met or getting into subsequent editions of Jansen's History of Art. They talked about affording health care, and if really pushed, a pipe dream, one painter called it, making enough money from selling their art to do it full-time. That's Bianca Bosca reading her book, Get the Picture. How did those studio visits change the way you see art? How did it help you in developing your eye? Drastically. I mean, you know, I think that I I had this goal. When I I started talking with artists, um, they quickly became clear that they pitied me. Mm -hmm. I lacked visual literacy, which they said was downright dangerous in a world so saturated with images, and really encouraged me Mm -hmm. to develop my eye, which is um, not just an organ, but in this context, this, you know, painstakingly cultivated outlook that allegedly enables you to see a lot that doesn't meet the uninitiated eye, like who will be the next Picasso or what's transcendent about a sculpture of limp vegetables on a stained mattress. Um, And as I got into working with artists but you know, but of course, also working at museums and galleries, it was really um, this transformation in the way that I saw art, but also the way I saw the world. And you know, I think that we often think of art as a luxury. You know, it can't feed us, clothe us, or be used to kill predators. Um, but artists and scientists are right there together and announcing it really a fundamental part of our humanity, um, as one biologist put it, as, as necessary to us as food or sex. And I think one of the things that it changed for me um, goes back to sort of how we we generally see. Um, I didn't realize this, but you know, vision is really a hallucination, right? We do mm-hmm. not see the world like video cameras, dispassionately recording the scenes around us. Our brains are trash compactors, and we have these filters of expectation that preemptively sort dismiss, ignore the raw data coming in even before we get the full picture. But art, that helps us fight these reducing tendencies of our minds. Artists know that, but scientists have come to that conclusion as well. Um, They argue that essentially art introduces a glitch into our brains, a glitch that is a gift, a glitch that helps our brains jump the curb. Um, And I think that for me, it was... uh, I le- le- being around artists helped me see art everywhere. Helped me not only get more out of the artwork I did see, but some of my favorite parts of going to a museum or a gallery these days are when I step outside and I begin to see art everywhere. I see it in the Mr. Softy trucks. I see it in the glow of a brick wall uh, that I would have, you know, totally ignored months before. But all of a sudden, instead of just being red, it's this alive with purples and and blues and it's surprising and beautiful i mean i hate to admit this but there is a a wall on east 81st street that has made me tear up with its sheer (laughs) beauty of its color um but i i do believe that there is an artist in each of us to the extent that we fight to keep our brains from compressing our experience of the world you know art is a decision It is a fight against complacency. Mm -hmm. It's a choice to forge a life that's more interesting, more complex, and ultimately more beautiful. Let's try to get one or two more calls in from artists. Charles is an artist calling in from the Upper West Side. Hi, Charles. Thank you so much, and thanks for your guest. By the way, I wanted to say this. You are truly an artist as a writer, because by going through all those studios, 
you saw the finished page, like when you write a page and it's finished and when a page reads like a letter, that's a, that's a piece of artwork. And I'm an artist. And I learned how to, uh, through other table space, through one of my teachers that gave me three pages in front of me. And he said, touch all corners of, of the page. And he'd always pull up the middle page because to get the other two pages, the other side, I had to go to the middle page. Mm. And that became the finished drawing. Mm. And then he was a very good artist. He was with Alan Stone Gallery, who was probably one of the best galleries in New York City, as long as it lasted, because they made Wayne Tebow. And uh, when I met the gallery owner, Alan Stone, he liked one of my drawings and said uh, that if I made them all like this, he would show me. And his assistant, her name was Joan Wolf. she was unique. Uh, when I would bring her work in to ask her to credit, she would say, you know, it's not carved out enough. It's not finished. She'd say, she just told me to go home and carve it out. So I think from your experiences, you were able to carve out your writing as a journalist. Because mm-hmm. sometimes when I visit and I shoot pictures like uh, uh, Richard Sarah has brought his his rigor has brought my photos because I like shooting his work when he's moving it around mm-hmm. with the cranes and everything. And, um, you know, for years I, I drew the insights of St. John Cathedral and I started the stone collection in Stone Yard. And then one year I drew the garden court in the Frick. So I wanted to get physical with the buildings that I was drawing because you know, when you yeah. see the total space, you can, you can draw like an architect and make them. You know, Charles, I'm going to jump in because we're running up against a hard out. Thank you for calling in and thank you for holding and thank you for all your kind words for our guest. Um, last quick question. We've got about one minute. Why is New York the art capital? <laughs> it's got everything. It's got all parts of the food chain. The name of the book is well done on that wrap. Well done. <laughs> My guest has been Bianca Bosker. The name of the book is Get the Picture, A Mind-Bending Journey Among the Inspired Artists and Obsessive Art Fiends Who Taught Me How to See. You can hear more from Bianca tomorrow at Rizzoli Bookstore at 6 p.m. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you so much for having me. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.